podcast for the DC Art Science Evening Rendezvous, or DAZER, a series of monthly evening salons exploring the intersections of art, science, and culture. DAZER is organized by cultural programs of the National Academy of Sciences in Washington, DC, and Leonardo, the International Society for the Arts, Sciences, and Technology. I'm your host, J.D. Tolosic. Each month, we bring artists, scientists, and other creative people together with a live audience in Washington, D.C. to explore the ways in which different perspectives can influence creativity and innovation. In February, our Dazer panel of artists and scientists described their experiences creating collaborative exchanges across disciplines and shared some of their challenges and their triumphs. This month, on March 16th, our Dazer panelists talked about the ways in which such collaborations relate to the ideal of community. First, each panelist described their own work, and then we began a discussion across the disciplines that they represented, a conversation which became more provocative during the question and answer period that followed. Neuroscientist Siddharth Ramakrishnan had found his way into quite a few interesting cross-disciplinary projects. Siddharth is a professor in bioelectronics at Columbia University in New York and a fellow of the UCLA Art Science Center. He co-teaches a course on nanobiotech and art and has worked with artists to create art installations that spark curiosity about some current science topics. He described one project that was aimed at raising the awareness of the Hox gene, which controls body morphology. According to Siddharth, if an animal has some mix-up in a hawk's gene, it's likely to dramatically affect the animal's appearance, such as producing legs where there should be ears, or perhaps an arm on its head. Siddharth's group found a compelling and easily accessible way to use an art installation to portray the role of the hawk's gene. So we wanted to kind of make people aware of the presence of these hawk's genes in almost all animals. So in every animal known, these hawk's genes control the body plan. So the way we went about it, it was uh, we, it was an interactive media installation, and uh, we used the Chinese zodiac as the installation was in Shanghai, and we used the different animals of the Chinese zodiac to represent uh, the different body plants. So an audience member will walk in and pick one of the animals of the Chinese zodiac, and suddenly her limbs will start morphing into the animal's limbs. So essentially, we're trying to keep the body plan integral but change the limbs kind of kind of giving you an indication that you could have had horse limbs and things like that it was pretty cool because we tested it out and people started getting interested and were curious to know more about hawks genes and we actually went further and tried to find out more multimedia artist alberto gaitan refers to his works as interdisciplinary mashups he began his artistic career as a musician but when arthritis made it too difficult for him to play guitar, he rediscovered music through computers. Now he works with artists in many genres of visual and performance art, combining them with concepts of computer programming and engineering. He described why it's important to him to lead efforts for DC art science communities like Dorkpot and Hack DC. The romantic notion of the artist laboring in solitude, an island of genius waiting discovery, never sounded right to me. Too much of my creativity fed on other ideas. I decided I needed to surround myself with artists and technologists, a pool of cross-pollinators from which new aesthetic forms could evolve. I volunteered with curated arts programming and eventually joined the board of DC's preeminent alternative art spaces. I did what I could to build community and present work to new audiences. 
Working in a more tactile realm, fiber artist Jennifer Lindsay has made crochet into a mathematical, well, hyperbolic to be more specific, pursuit as part of the Hyperbolic Crocheted Coral Reef Exhibition. For the project, crocheters around the world followed mathematical patterns to create astoundingly lifelike models of organisms that inhabit a coral reef. Jennifer organized the crochet efforts in the D.C. area for the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History. The Hyperbolic Crochet Coral Reef is a fascinating intersection of mathematics, marine science, conservation, craft, and community activism. I experienced firsthand the transformative power that such a substantial collaborative venture can inspire in members of the community and in the host institution. It seems extraordinary to see a fiber art exhibit displayed at the National Museum of Natural History. The museum here in Washington proved to be the perfect setting because it could sustain the project with substantive expertise in marine science, public education, conservation, exhibition design, and installation. Andrew Wingfield is a writer who practices what he calls an ecological approach to fiction. His writing looks at the ways that people and places shape each other. A recent novel begins with a mountain lion attack on a jogger, launching into an exploration of the ecological and personal costs of development. After he finished the book, he began team teaching with conservation biologists and wildlife policy analysts, who had been thinking in very disciplined ways about subjects he felt he had just stumbled upon. But I feel like I was able to kind of ad adopt this ecological perspective, this ecological way of thinking from some of the colleagues that I taught with, um, and that it has really percolated into my writing in ways that sometimes sort of surprise me. So to me and to my writing, I guess the most profound insight of ecology is that it's a science that, that focuses on relationships, on how organisms and communities interact with each other and with their physical environments, how these communities are dynamic, not static, and how interactions are happening all the time, how living things are adapting, competing, and yes, even cooperating, how they're shaping their environment and how they're also being shaped by it. And also, and crucially, how humans are but one species within the ecological community, albeit a species with an outsized footprint. In discussion with the audience after their initial presentations, the speakers described the different ways in which community is important to their work. Even though Alberto often creates work on his own, he is never really working alone. We really can't do much without other people. We can't really come up with new ideas without lots of ideas bombarding us. And we can't come up with good ideas as a society without lots and lots of ideas. So to me, a community is just as necessary as every brain cell I have, which is a community. Well, since you said it's brain cell, I see the neuroscientist grabbing the... Uh... <laughs> well, um, I found it interesting working with artists where a lot of lab work is very solitary, where you're sitting in the lab and doing your research, whereas it's so much fun working with a creative community where you're sitting and brainstorming. A compelling aspect of community for Jennifer was seeing how the people she'd brought together passed on skills and developed relationships in a way that is sometimes sidelined in our gadget-happy culture. I think community projects like that do reduce people's fear because they create bonds that you wouldn't otherwise form with one another and they give you opportunities for growth in all kinds of ways and, and I just think that 
creating connections and growing yourself is a great way to overcome any sort of fear that you might have. Andy seconded that notion and said teaching in particular can help people overcome fears of being outside their comfort zone. He has taught in collaborative environments where all the teachers have to teach all of the subjects. This can be especially challenging because when someone is teaching, they feel more of a sense of what they don't know. Once I sat with a geologist in a room full of other faculty crying because she didn't think she would be able to teach a poem to freshmen <laughs> um, that we had to teach. Within a few weeks, she was uh, making up assignments that the rest of us were using on how to get students to engage with the Ibsen play that we also had to teach them. But she was terrified, and it was partially kind of being reassured and getting out of her comfort zone. I think the thing with collaboration is that I, I find that scientists collaborate a lot. It seems like a very collaborative culture, but a lot of times they're bringing the thing that they know how to do best to the collaboration. And I think the, the teaching collaborations that I've been often, one is exposed for what one doesn't know how to do. And that, that's, that's scary. But if you can overcome that fear, I think it can be incredibly liberating. It's a way to keep learning in your life. And also to model something for students about curiosity and inquiry and not being afraid to ask questions and learn. Thanks for joining us for this podcast of the DC Art Science Evening Rendezvous sponsored by cultural programs of the National Academy of Sciences. Dazer is a monthly community-centered salon in Washington, D.C., organized by the cultural programs of the National Academy of Sciences and by Leonardo, the International Society for the Arts, Sciences, and Technology. For more information on Dazer programs and other events and exhibitions at the Academy, visit us on the web at www.cpnas.org. I'm J.D. Tolosic.